I will never forget my very first camp out as a young boy. Uh, I believe I was eight or nine. It was my birthday party. We crammed a bunch of boys in a two-room tent. Uh, we went deep into the suburban wild of my backyard, about 10 feet off of the house. And uh, I remember uh, it, was a, it was an awesome time. We did all kinds of things. We, we did flashlight tag in the backyard, basically hide and go seek with a flashlight. Uh, ran around. It was a ton of fun. We uh, did s'mores over a little campfire. Uh, we talked about our favorite cartoons. For me, it was Scooby-Doo and Transformers at the time. Uh, and then, uh, as it happens at just about every boy's camp out, uh, we get to the point where one of the guys says, let's tell ghost stories. And so we said, let's do it. And this guy starts sharing this story that, I, I mean, it was pretty good. I was impressed. And I remember as he's articulating this story, you know, as an eight- or nine-year-old boy does, I remember thinking, okay, this is my party. I have to deliver. I've got to give them something good. And so while he's sharing a story, I'm racking my brain. Okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to share? How am I going to get these guys all scared? And I just couldn't think of anything. And so when he finishes, I go, okay, okay. I got a good one for you, but I really didn't. And as I do often with my boys when I lay them down for, for bed at night, I just make it up on the spot, and sometimes it comes together, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it sounds a lot like a, a recent uh, Pixar movie plot, uh, but I pretend like it's mine, and I started going on, and, and I, you know, it, was, it was one of those, okay, so there's this house <laughs> down the road, and I went inside of it in the middle of the night, you know, the abandoned one. No, you went inside it? Yeah. And I start going on just making stuff up on the spot. And Ghost Storytelling 101 is if you've got nothing good, you don't really know how to turn that last corner. You just get them all zoned in and get them really focused and start whispering and just give it to them really good. And then just when they're really hooked, "Ah!" you just scream at the top of their lungs and they jump. And that's exactly what I did. And it worked. Now, I remember more than anything that night, though, that my uh, cool high school next-door neighbor, Jared, came over. And we're a bunch of eight- or nine-year-old boys, and Jared comes over. He goes, so boys, you telling ghost stories? We're like, yeah. He says, I got one for you. He starts to tell us this story about how at nighttime in that neighborhood, the dogs would break out of their pens. And they would go deep into the woods and they would circle together and they would start rallying together and then they'd go out and go on a killing spree. And us kids were like, no way. And I remember laying in my tent that night and surely one after another, each of the boys dropped, went to sleep. And I just remember laying there in my sleeping bag, just horrified <laughs> and just thinking, oh man. And then one of the neighbor's dogs started barking, which led to the next neighbor dog barking, until the whole neighborhood was just howling, and I was horrified. But I remembered, I, this is my party. I cannot go inside. And so I just laid there through the night, just <laughs> fighting and just thinking, I'm about to, you know, a dog's about to pounce on me through the tent, and my life is over. And it was all because of Jared sharing this really good, convincing story. And uh, we were all just sucked in and mesmerized. And I'll never forget that story as long as I live. I may or may not have shared it a few times at other uh, campouts. 
maybe you got somebody in your life who's really good at telling stories. Maybe it's a grandfather, your crazy uncle with war stories, or a school teacher, a professor, or uh, you know, a, a parent that tells you stories about their, their childhood. But there's just something about a really good story that just kind of grabs our attention, kind of like mine just did, telling you a story about a story. And it kind of grabs our attention and brings us in. And Jesus' stories were really no different. In fact, Matthew chapter 7, 28, talking about the teaching of Jesus, says that the crowds, when he finishes teaching, are astonished at the teaching of Jesus, that he spoke with one uh, who speaks with authority. And Jesus would often tell stories, and the accounts of the, the, the records of the life of Jesus always have, or often have Jesus telling stories. And I like to imagine myself being one of the disciples, you know, around a campfire with Jesus at night, and he prays, maybe he breaks bread with them, and then he tells them, a story and just kind of on the edge of my uh, seat listening to Jesus. But the big difference is for Jesus, his stories weren't just great stories, but they were stories that changed people's lives. And that's exactly what I want for all of us is I just pray that through this summer, we're going to hear stories and maybe a few will really resonate with you that will go uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit about changing your lives. And, and, and now here's what uh, the, the method of storytelling that we're looking at are, are, are what we call parables. And parables were often used by ancient rabbis, Jewish teachers, and they used them because like stories do is they would capture people's attention, they would hook them really well, but then they would also double to, to teach these spiritual lessons. You may have heard it said before that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, that they're earthly stories, stories about things that happen on this earth in your life, but have these heavenly spiritual meanings, that they're not just strong stories that are really good, but they actually teach you something uh, deep, a principle, a, a spiritual um, concept that you need to latch onto, and not just for morality's sake, so that you can go and be moral, but that these stories, as they are the living and active spoken word of God, that they would enter into your heart, and they would really do a work in you, and as Hebrew says, that they would cut you, that they would uh, pierce, and, and really like a surgeon's scalpel, just really work in your heart and your life, and cut for the sake of healing, that maybe you're challenged a little bit and it presses on you a little bit, but it goes about healing you and restoring you much like a surgeon scalpel. And so these stories that Jesus gives us, they have uh, earthly themes, a lot of common characters and locations that people could really connect with and relate with, things like kings and farmers and fields and wine and tax collectors and, and barns and sheep. And, and, you know, if Jesus walked into our culture today, maybe his stories would have had something along the lines of, I don't know, television or vehicles or, or media themes or athletics, uh, but, but these would be things that connected with the people of their day. Now, the things that Jesus was sharing about these agricultural type things are things that really are still all over the world today, and so um, though you may not be a farmer, they connect with people on, on the broad level, and so they are, are things that we can connect with and hook onto and latch onto and really be challenged by and, and remember. Now, another purpose of the parables according to Matthew chapter 13 in the scriptures as it records what Jesus says is that Jesus says that you know there, there comes this point in his earthly ministry where many people had rejected Jesus and so what he began to do is he began to to teach in parable because they had rejected him their eternal fate was sealed and so speaking in parable what it would do is it would hide the deeper meaning of these uh, parables from those people who had already proven not to be spiritually discerning those people who had proven to already reject the Lord 
and, and those who were not believers, and it would serve kind of as a precautionary measure so that the people who needed to learn these themes would learn them, but those who have already rejected Jesus would not understand so that it would, it would really be precautionary so that his uh, early arrest would not come. His arrest wouldn't come prior to the appropriate time. And so let's recap a little bit. Uh, some of the purposes of the parable. So first of all, they're earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They, they hold attention while also carrying a lot of really great truth. Uh, they weren't necessarily actual events, but they did convey actual truths of God. Uh, they connect people by using common themes in their culture that they could relate with. They're stories that stick. Maybe you, some of you remember parables if you grew up in the church. They, they stick, they're memorizable, and they conveyed a deeper meaning to some while concealing truth to others. And so let's, uh, let's learn through the parables this summer. Let's really get them and, and try to glean from them as much as we possibly can. But also, as we spend our summer on mission together, I also want to encourage us to learn from Jesus' teaching methods, the way that he, he taught. He was very good, very skilled at sharing his message through story. And so let me ask you, can, can you get a little bit better at sharing his message, the message of Jesus, through story? I, I think we could. I think we could probably improve upon that. I, I think often about, you know, after Jesus died and, and rose again, and he's appearing um, to people for, for 40 days, and he's showing up to them, and he, he appears to these two guys on the road to Emmaus. You know the story? And they're walking to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile road, and he walks alongside of them for seven miles and it says that for seven miles, he explained to them the Old Testament narrative, the, the story of the Old Testament that would in turn point them to him so that they could see, wow, he's from the beginning, and now here he is. And then when he moves on after he opens their eyes, they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he shared with us these things? I just picture you know, our hearts burning within us as Jesus shares stories, and, and it really is a wonderful thing, his, his teaching uh, mechanism that we call parables. His stories are, are deeply woven into every culture in history. I mean, every single culture stories are, are there. People have always told stories, and, and today, a lot of our stories come out, obviously, through various media forms, and uh, maybe you, through contemporary music or through movies, can convey the truth of the gospel, that you can utilize some stories that are there. A lot of stories have a burden, have a problem. A lot of stories have a hero. A lot of stories have disappointment that then leads to, no, the hero is still there, kind of like the burden of sin. And then the hero, Jesus, emerges, but then you think he's gone when he's crucified, but then he emerges victorious again. And so we can use uh, media and we can use modern stories. Maybe you could also just personally share your story. That's a story. It's your story that God has given you that you can share to show here's how God has changed my life. If you don't know where to start, start with your own personal story and bring it to Jesus, how God has changed you. See, so often I think churches like to make it, you know, just this acronym. You know, if you want to share your, your, your message of faith with somebody, just make a, a nice acronym, ABC. Admit, believe, confess. That's it, right? Or I remember for me as a kid it was faith, forsaking all I trust him. And it's just a nice acronym. But you know what? People connect with stories, and, and Jesus understood that. He wasn't walking around sharing acronyms. He was sharing stories. And, and, and can you, let me ask you, can you share the story of Scripture in a few minutes with somebody? Can you do that? Do you know how to do that in a way that's kind of in a story form that you could say, hey, God created us 
for a relationship with him. It was this beautiful picture that God made for us of, of this existence in harmony with him, but then we turned our backs on him. We, we sin, and then you can walk them through some of the struggles of humanity, trying to earn God's favor, trying to please God, and, and really just finding frustration. You could talk about how, how God then, uh, through human history, rose up this nation, Israel, and from Israel comes this man, this Messiah, God, taking on human flesh, who then goes and, and lives perfectly, undeserving of death, but dies as our substitution, as our sacrifice, as our whipping boy for us. And though he dies, he rises again because sin has no hold on God. Can you share that story in a story format where we have uh, someone who has come to rescue us from captivity, the hero emerges and he saves the day? Can you share that? I think we should really work on that. And I would encourage you, if you can't articulate the story in story format, to, to work on it. And I'm serious. I would encourage you to write it out and try to practice figuring out how to share it in story form. Maybe you can actually say it out loud in your car or share it with somebody. Maybe your group can practice sharing it in story form. But I would encourage you to practice. I practice, like I said before, my boys all the time. I'll, sometimes I'll fumble around through a story. And then a lot of times I'll just say, you know what, I'm just going to share the message of Jesus. with them. I'm just going to share the Bible. And I make it in this epic format, you know, this massive, awesome story. And then they go, that's so cool. Tell me about the hero. It's Jesus. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And you can do that. And I would encourage us to practice and to train ourselves. You know, if you have a job and many of you have jobs where you go to training and it's really important to you to train and you take it seriously. Well, this is our job as believers. This is our ultimate mission as believers is to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so I would encourage you Don't just kind of blow it off like, eh, this isn't my work. No, this is something that we are to take seriously and to work hard at the craft of sharing the story, the message of Jesus. And and often uh, times it doesn't have to just be, let me sit down and open the theology book with you, but let me share my story. Let me share from this movie that we just watched how Jesus relates into that. Let me articulate to you a story. Maybe it's to kids. You can share this epic story, and it it really comes back to it's, it's about Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to work on that and to, 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 to get good at that. Let's watch how Jesus does it. Uh, this is the first of our nine or ten parables this summer. Uh, look again at Luke 18, 9 through 14, as was read uh, just a few minutes ago. I want to read this, um, or review this rather, together. Uh, maybe you've heard the joke before, or the many, many jokes before, you know, two guys walk into a bar, you know, one guy ducks and the other one hits his head and cheesy i know but jesus gives us two men walk into a temple and there's no punchline. instead it's a it's a life-changing point two men walk into the temple and both of these men go into the temple so that they can pray he says he says one man is a pharisee the other man is a tax collector. Now, in those days, a Pharisee was a highly respected religious leader. In those days, there were, there were three major religious societies of Judaism. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, and there were the Essenes. And the Pharisees were the most vocal and the most influential of the uh, religious society. Their name, that, that name Pharisee in the original language meant separatist or, or separate ones. They were the extremists of the Old Testament law and they would separate themselves and not just really pay close attention to the law, but they would also 
add on to the law all of these little rules and regulations so that if here's the line, they would be way over here and it would become this highly legalistic thing that would become a burden when uh, applied to other people. And so they uh, oftentimes oppressed people with their rules and regulations. They were extremists uh, to the Old Testament law. Their intentions were to obey God, but their intentions went sour when Jesus shows up and he is their long-awaited Messiah, and they were too dependent on themselves and on their morality and their adherence to the rules that they couldn't accept him as Lord. And so there was a Pharisee who walks into the temple, and then Jesus says, and there was a tax collector. And a tax collector was just that. If you want to say boo, you can totally say boo. Uh, he's, he's the guy who comes on behalf of the government uh, to take your money. You love paying taxes, right? We all love ta- paying taxes. You look at your paycheck and you go, yes, supporting my government. Wonderful thing. You love that, right? No, the, the, the tax collectors had a terrible reputation. Uh, first of all, because nobody wants their money to be taken from them. Uh, second of all, on top of this, these guys were known to take an extra cut of what was owed. So if you owed $250, they would say, it looks here that you owe $300, and then they would keep an extra $50, and that's what they did. They were greedy, they were corrupt, they were thieves. And so both of these guys walk into the temple. The Pharisee uh, prays this very prideful prayer. God, look what I have done. The, the tax collector prays this very humble prayer. Oh God, what have I done? Two different kinds of prayers. And in verse 11, when the Pharisee begins to pray, His prayer sounds something like this, something like, God, thank you that I am not like all these other people in here, like the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even that tax collector over there. God, I fast twice a week. I give a ton of money to the church. What a scumbag, right? What a a scumbag. I mean, can you imagine me, a religious leader, showing up and, and doing something like that? These guys were religious leaders of their day. Can you imagine me coming into this place, a public place like their temple, and getting into the microphone and saying something, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like all of these heathens right here. The adulterer, and this person on the front row right here, you know what they've done, God. I mean, it's terrible, right? God, I, I give all this money to the church. I'm so worthy of your favor. God, I'm, I'm so good. God, I get up at 3 a.m. to read my Bible and to pray for three hours every morning before heading off to work. I put all of my money in the basket. God, I'm so good. You would hate me, right? And, and rightfully so. You see what Jesus is trying to do here with this parable? What Jesus is trying to do is he's kind of over the top with his description of the Pharisee to, to make a point. Because if somebody actually did just that, they would probably get beat up. Jesus is making a point. He's saying, listen, I want to be extreme here so that you can see that this is kind of how we religious people act sometimes. And let's be honest. Do we ever act like the Pharisee? Do we ever kind of like to point out the sins of other people without actually looking at our own sin? You know, Jesus in the... The scripture says, you know, we like to point out the speck, just a little speck in somebody else's eye, but we forget about the log in our own eye, a log in our own eye. It's easy to think, hey, I'm, I'm doing okay spiritually because I'm not as bad as he is, not as bad as she is. And Jesus is clearly speaking against that. He says, do not 
compare yourself to other people, to make yourself feel good about how you are doing in your walk with the Lord. So the first thing he does is he points out the, the, the sin of other people while praying, and he wrongfully looks down his nose at these other people. Let's not ever be guilty of looking down our nose at other people. Let's treat all people with love and grace and compassion the same as was given to us from the Lord. If anybody walks through the doors of this church or if we connect with anybody outside of the walls of this church, James makes it very clear that, listen, we treat them all equally because we need the grace of God just like they do. It doesn't matter if you're struggling with pride. It doesn't matter if you're struggling with gossip and they're struggling with adultery. We all need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God. And Second Peter tells us that God desires for all to come to repentance. All of them. And I think about, I think about Peter himself saying that. Peter who messed up so bad, didn't he? I mean, he way messed up on Jesus. At the very end, he's like his closest buddy. He bails on him. And Jesus is about to be hung to the cross. He's being beat, stripped naked, humiliated physical, emotional, spiritual pain, and Peter bails. And yet, God in his grace takes him in. And so he says, listen, God desires all to come to repentance. And that was not just this theological thing that he put out there. That was a personal thing that he experienced. Now look what he does next. Look at verse 12. He starts to brag about all that he's doing for God. Pharisee starts to talk about all that he's doing for God, about how often he prays, about how hard he prays, about his financial giving to uh, the temple. For us, it would be to the church. And who is he bragging to? Just state the obvious. He's bragging to God. (laughs) You don't brag to God. How do do you brag to God? Uh, And and you can remember Romans chapter 3, verse 10, says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. I love that little Caveat at the end there. There's no one righteous. And then as if to anticipate that we're going to say, well, well, but, but, but me, you see what I, he goes, there's no one righteous. No, not one, right? I love how Paul kind of reads our, our mind there, that we cannot earn God's favor. We don't deserve a relationship with him. And so some of the lessons that we glean from this Pharisee and his actions in Jesus' story here is, first of all, all of us need to be very cautious of uh, personal pride. We need to be really cautious to check our own hearts, even those of you who have been a believer for a really long time, maybe even especially those of you who have been a believer for a long time, because pride is ugly. We all have room to grow spiritually, and so we need to humble ourselves. We need to never compare ourselves to other people. We need to compare ourselves to God, and and we need to ask God to show us our sin even when we think we're doing well in the Lord, and that's great. But continue to ask God to show your sin. Continue to live a life of repentance. God, what can I turn from? How can I turn? How can I follow you? Lord, I trust in you. I need you. And we need to look at the the other people in our lives that are sinful and struggling, and we need to see them with love and genuine concern because uh, Galatians 6.1, their sin is not, hey, busted, I caught you. But if anyone is caught in sin, as in they're trapped in sin. We want to help them out, and so we love them, and we have compassion, and be very cautious not to be pharisaical. Now, let's look at the tax collector, if we can. He is the extreme opposite of the Pharisee, isn't he, in their culture? 
They were considered the lowest of the low, especially by the Pharisees. They were, they were viewed as traitors because they got in bed with Rome. They were traitors because they started to tax their, their Jewish brothers. And now uh, here, uh, I want us to see that, that what both the Pharisee and the tax collector have in common is that they both needed God because they were both sinful. It's pretty obvious the sin of the tax collector, but the Pharisee is sinful as well, and he doesn't even realize it, but he's sinful in his pride. He's sinful just in being a human and, and being tainted by sin. Even his thoughts that he thinks are clean and wonderful and beautiful are tainted by sin, and so he was this arrogant man. And, and, and here's what differentiated the two of them, pride and humility. They both had in common sin, differentiation. We have pride and we have humility. The Pharisee was arrogant and thought he deserved God and heaven and life. Tax collector, on the other hand, he was humble and he realized his, his struggles and realized how wrong he had been. It's interesting to notice that unlike the Pharisee, the, the tax collector stood far off, like in the back of the church, far away, didn't even feel worthy uh, to be close. Notice he didn't, even, he didn't even look up. This is kind of like our concept of bowing your head when you pray. It's not a must. It's not commanded in scripture. But we bow our head in prayer because we're, we're doing it as a sign of humility. And this guy wasn't doing it out of some kind of spiritual routine. He was doing it because he was really authentically, genuinely humbled and didn't feel worthy to look up to the Lord. He goes on, it says that he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. And then what does it say? Jesus says, what does he say about the tax collector? He says that he went home, he left and he went home justified. The, the root word of justified being justice. That he was made legally right with God. Justice. Because he realized that he absolutely needed God. That he messed up. He was sinful. I need you. And so God says, you go home justified. And Jesus says in verse 14 that whoever exalts himself, like the Pharisee, will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted, will be justified. Because for us, we're not trusting in self anymore. We're not saying my performance earned me God's favor. It doesn't matter if you're a tax collector or a Pharisee in our day and age. Your performance never earns you God's favor. Because the question I want to ask every single person who says, well, I think I'm good enough for heaven, is do you, you really think God wants you to go around your whole life just hoping that maybe I was good enough for heaven? God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to walk around saying, Man, I hope I'm good enough. And the question I always pose is, how good is good enough? Is it here but not here? What about over here? I mean, how do you know? Is it going to church 100 times in your lifetime? Is it 101? Is it 99? No, there's a way that you can know, and that is that you can be justified. You can be made legally right with God, that your sins can be dealt with, not because you pay the price for your sin, but because Jesus pays the price for your sin because you look to Jesus. You've humbled yourself and says, please, God, don't look upon my life because I know I've messed up time and time again. And even when I try my hardest, God, I fail. But God, I humble myself and I say, please look at the life of Jesus who did it perfectly. And when he looks at the life of Jesus, 
who then goes and dies and pays the price for your sin, gets locked up for your sin, gets the electric chair for your sin, justice has been served, right? But he's not dead forever. He resurrects to life, being victorious over Satan, sin, and death. You can be justified if you trust in Jesus. And so the principle here is that God will exalt the humble, as you say, not me, but he, Jesus. But for those who are going to exalt themselves, he says, oh, you'll be humbled. And it might even feel like, man, why are these people just so full of themselves? They seem to prosper. Listen, they might prosper for 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, but I promise you for all eternity, there will be no prosperity for them because they've trusted in self. But for those who trust in Jesus, you might feel like, man, I've humbled myself, I've trusted in the Lord. On the other side of the grade, you will prosper. Some of us will see that prosperity on the earth. Some of us will not. There is no promise. But for all eternity, you will be exalted. You will have eternal reward with the Lord because you've trusted in him. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. So it will come, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that means on the other side of the grave, you will see that victory. You will be exalted. But you must humble yourself. And so some of you, I would say this. You're trusting in Jesus, and you've humbled yourself, and you're pressing forward. Hang in there. God will honor your humility. He will. He will. It's a promise. Maybe on this side of the grave, maybe on the next side of the grave, but it is coming. You will be exalted in eternity through Jesus. Some of us in here, maybe you're coming to a place like the tax collector. You're, hey, it is no doubt my sin. And maybe you come in here with your proverbial head held low, and you feel like, this is not me. I don't deserve the Lord. You're right. And guess what? I'm a pastor, and I don't deserve the Lord either. But God wants to give you life as you trust in Jesus. I love how Jesus uses these extremes in this story to show us the extreme, that even if you're like the tax collector and you're way bad, like you're the lowest of the low, God says, you're not too far gone from me. There is hope for you. And even if you're really, really, really good by the world's standards, God says you can't be good enough. Jesus is good enough. The scriptures say that your, your righteousness, your best effort is like filthy rags. It's all tainted. So we humble ourselves and we trust in Jesus. Yes, we want to honor God with our lives, but never has that earned his favor. He gives us favor, and then out of gratitude, we honor God with our life. But your behavior never earns the favor of God. Some of you have heard this before, and you need to be reminded of it over and over and over and over again. We, as a church, will constantly preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, over and over and over again, because the most spiritual person who's been following Jesus for a really long time needs to hear it again and again, because we tend in our flesh to drift towards thinking I'm good enough, to look down our nose and think I'm better, but you're not. I'm not. Jesus is good enough. And others of us are hearing this and receiving it for the first time. God is doing a work in your heart, and you need to say yes to Jesus so that you can go home justified, that you can know that you know that you know that you are right with God because you've trusted in Jesus and not in yourself. I want to ask us a few questions. 
First of all, which of these two are you most like? Who do you, who do you resonate with? I'm not saying, well, shame on you. and shame. No, we all kind of resonate with somebody in this story. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Maybe you've just kind of been thinking you've been really good. Maybe you are very aware of your sin and your failures. And yet God says, I'm not here to shame you, but you can lift your head. You can go home justified. Which one do you resonate with? Now I want to I give you a test to help you figure out where you're at, pride versus humility. I want to ask you three questions. First one is this. Do your actions communicate humility or pride? Your actions. Think about how you live your life, things you say, what you do. Does it communicate humility or pride? Again, in the, in the parable, the tax collector stood at a, at a distance and he looked down. He beat his chest when he realized his sin. That's humility. And the Pharisee said, whoa, look at me. I'm so great. I'm so holy. That would be pride. What do your actions say? The way that you talk to God when you pray? There's no repentance whatsoever. Might be a sign of you think you got it all together, and we don't. There's a lot of repentance. That's a great thing. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. How about the way you deal with people in your life? Humility or pride? The way you talk to other people, the way you talk to a spouse, the way you talk to a parent, the way you talk to a sibling, the way you talk to your children, what does it communicate to them? The way you deal with other believers. Is it comparing? What are you doing? And the way that you deal with the people that God has given you to minister to, just put them in your life. Do you talk down to them or do you talk to them as a person who's just across the, the aisle from you? We're the same. I'm just looking at you. We're at the same level. I needed Jesus and you need Jesus. I found him 20 years ago and I'm praying you find him today. There's really no difference. You both needed and need the Lord. What do your actions communicate? Next question is, do you compare yourself to God or to other people? Think about that. Do you compare yourself to God or to other people? Catch this. The Pharisee saw himself in light of the tax collector, didn't he? But the tax collector saw himself in light of God. Pharisee says, look at me compared to him. The tax collector said, look at me compared to him. Who do you compare yourself to? It doesn't matter how holy you are. When you compare yourself to God's standard, you need a Savior. It doesn't matter how holy you are, we can all be growing. Who do you compare yourself to? And then the last question is this. Do you celebrate God's grace or your own performance? Think about it. In the way you talk and when you have a victory, are you celebrating the grace of God or are you celebrating Look what I've done. Look at my performance. We are to celebrate what God has done for us and not what I have achieved. What God has done with the cross. Look who God has done with the cross. I call it the principle of deflecting. It means when somebody tries to point praise to you, you say, praise God. When somebody likes to lift you up, you say, it was God. When somebody says, wow, you have such hope, you do what? Peter says, you share the reason for the hope that you have, right? You celebrate not your own performance. You, you celebrate the Lord. I want us to, to, to close by checking ourselves with these three questions. Your actions 
communicate humility or pride? Do you compare yourself to God or to other people? And do you celebrate God's grace or your own performance? I think all of us in here need to take a moment to, to talk to the Lord. So I would just invite you again in the posture of the, the tax collector to, to bow your head if we can. Maybe it has a little more meaning than it typically does for us. And I want to give you a moment to, to speak with the Lord. Some of us maybe need to confess that we're like the Pharisee in some way. Maybe other, others of us need to resonate with the tax collector and say, I have sinned and God, I need a Savior. And maybe in this moment, now is your time because your sins are killing you as they do all of us, that you need to say, Lord, look at Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I place faith in Jesus, not my own performance. I'm not good enough. Jesus is good enough. I'm not self-righteous. I want to be Jesus-righteous. Have you been made righteous through the death of Jesus on the cross? Scripture says that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That means that if you will say, I'm not looking to myself, but Jesus, I look to you as my substitution, you will be saved. Because you've humbled yourself and you said, it's about Jesus, not me. I trust in Jesus. I turn from sin. I follow Jesus. I'm not going to be perfect, but Jesus was perfect. I want to give you guys a moment to pray. Some of you to confess sin. Some of you for the first time to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we sit here in a posture of heads bowed. God, I pray that our physical posture would reflect our spiritual posture. That we would be a humble people. Lord, that no one would ever say of us that they think they're better than me. Lord, thank you for your grace that puts us all on the same playing field. From the highest achiever to the lowest from the person who's been raised in the church to the person who's far from God, that we can be one in the Spirit, that we can be one in mission, we can be one in Jesus, we can be one in affection for you. God, thank you for that. Because you are so gracious and you give us what we don't deserve. You give us life, life abundantly, life eternally, through Jesus. God, would you continue to unify your people God, this idea that floats out there that the Christian faith causes division, may it be gone because we communicate your grace that it humbles us and it puts us on the same team as we trust in Jesus. From the best to the worst, do that work in us, Father. May your church locally and your church globally be a unified people. That as you prayed in your high priestly prayer, the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in Scripture, you pray that we might be one. May that be true of us.
May we not look across the room and compare, but compare ourselves to you and be on the same team. May we all be humble. For some of us, that means that we need you to humble us. It's hard just to act humble than it's acting. Would you humble us? And I pray that with fear and trepidation, because that can be a a challenging process, but Lord, would you humble us and glorify yourself. And God, for those in this room who don't have a relationship with Jesus, they have never turned to Jesus, God, may they see their need for a Savior in this moment, that they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, because they're not trusting in their own works, their own righteousness, they would trust in the righteousness of Jesus, the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.